Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and ants give me the heebie-jeebies like nothing else. I'm Caitlin, and black widows give me the heebie-jeebies because I just found a bunch of them at my house. Ooh, burn the house. I know, right? I like how you found a bunch. Like even finding just one would be the worst, but no, you have you have many. I'm not kidding about it being a bunch. I found like yeah, seven. Well. All right, I am Cameron, and sunlight gives me the heebie-jeebies. Oh my mm. god! I actually believe that one. <laughs> I'm Kristen, and centipedes give me the heebie-jeebies. We are not a fan of when small they... crawly things around here. Okay, but centipedes, when they sting you, can hurt as bad as a gunshot wound. Okay, there's a reason that they are the worst. I mean, I've heard black widow bites aren't the greatest either. Yeah, just getting bit by small things. It's no fun. Well, I'm Susan. I, what gives me the heebie-jeebies includes large pieces of heavy equipment and being on top of high things, like looking out over the edge of the uh, Diablo Dam here uh, close to my house. Oh, yeah. Good answer. So we'd like to give a huge welcome to our special guest, Susan R. Matthews, whose debut novel, An Exchange of Hostages, was nominated for the 1997 Philip K. Dick Award and for the 1998 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. She sends for in eight other books in this dystopian space opera series, plus many other books. Tell us a little bit about your book, Susan. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, the ju- Under Jurisdiction series, um, I like to describe to people as the life and hard times of Uncle Andre Kosciuszko, who is not a nice man. And his story started uh, way back when as a, uh, a nice young man from a wealthy and influential family where he comes from. He had graduated from his medical school because he wanted to help people. And his family, in order to spend the time uh, between his graduation and the fact that his dad would be ready to turn over the raise the family business, sent him the jurisdiction fleet. This is a dystopian universe in which a overarching government is becoming increasingly authoritarian and working increasingly hard at maintaining social control through state-sponsored terror, institutionalized torture. And this is the role that Andre has been uh, directed to fill because as a writer, you get to put your characters into a small box and watch them try to get out. You can de- you can define their realities. He feels he has no choice and discovers in the first novel to his horror that not only is he quite good at hurting people atrociously, because as a doctor, he had to develop a certain degree of empathy. But also he finds out that he really, really, really likes it. So at the, at one t- at the same time, he is convinced that what he's doing is morally wrong. There is, there is no justification for this. And at the other, on the other hand, it's an immensely and almost immediately addicting 
sensation for him. So Andre spends the next four or five novels trying to select different stratagems or coping mechanisms, trying to figure out how he's going to get around his duties and failing until he makes a final breakthrough and uh, becomes even more of a problem to the authorities at that time. So that's uh, that's Andre Kosciusko. That's where he started. Where he is now is in a strange and unusual place. Unusual place. Things are a lot better for him, but there's still work to be done. That sounds awesome. Wow. <laughs> I should say that that character gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's fantastic. And actually, that's a great lead-in for our discussion today, because today we're talking about heebie-jeebie research. What do we mean by heebie-jeebie research? So when I first um, reached out to Susan to come on the podcast, she mentioned she was going on a research trip to walk through a cramped, claustrophobic U-boat to get invaluable, and I'm doing air quotes, on-site heebie-jeebies experience. Those were her words. And I loved them so much that that's what we're talking about. So I'm generally going to define heebie-jeebie research as an in-person experience that informs both the sensory detail, but also informs blocking and the plausibility of your planned plot. Extra points for in-person experiences that give you the heebie-jeebies, right? So why is it important to have in-person experiences as part of your research? Apart from the fact that I was really interested in the U-boats for reasons that I won't bore you by detailing, I am not a spatially oriented person. Maggie and I, that's my wife, have been in this house since 1982, I think, and I still couldn't tell you how big it is or what the square footage of my house is. So when I was reading about U-boats and the statistics would tell you that this model is uh, got an internal dimensions of this wide by this long. I really have no idea. Well, some idea, but not much. What does that mean? I tried to go down the block and pace it off to see how many pieces of sidewalk that means. I needed to go see the U-boat to get an immediate personal experience that I could fix in my mind and says, that is how big this thing actually is and or is not as the case may be. So for me, because of my, uh, my my lack of some pieces of spatial orientation, the only real chance that I had of understanding exactly what the environment that I wanted to use was actually like was to go find a U-boat and walk on it. And that's kind of difficult because at the end of World War II, the Allies parted the U-boat fleet out amongst the Allies. And then generally speaking, they blew them all up when they were done with them. But this one particular U-boat turned out to be still on the beach in Kiel in Germany as a war memorial. One thing that I think is so important about having in-person experiences is that it makes it easier to have an immersive experience for your readers. I've noticed that a lot of times beginning writers do this thing where they they have blocking and people nod and they blink and there are physical details in the writing, but it's kind of like none of the characters interact with those objects around them unless the characters are specifically mentioning them. So it's kind of like things appear very briefly and then they're gone and it's like the writer's forgotten about them. And I always kind of wonder if the writer's actually picturing anything in their head or if they're just putting in details as they occur to them. But writers who clearly build a three-dimensional place into the writing because they're building off of in-person experiences, they create worlds that I would recognize if I were ever to be like dropped into them. Like I just read um, Rory Power's book, Wilder Girls, which I think does an excellent job of this. If I suddenly found myself on the island of Raxter, I would immediately recognize it. And I think there's something really 
um, immersive and kind of raw about using the experiences that you've actually had to create a world for your reader. And I think it makes a more interesting reading experience. I agree. I think there are things you will notice as a writer that other people won't. And putting those details into your work is what makes it fresh and exciting. People want to have an experience they haven't had before and that they've never experienced something from your perspective. The thing that occurred to me while y'all were speaking is that if you have to draw completely on not real-world experiences to describe something, so for example, if you're going to describe what it's like to walk in a castle, and you only and you can only draw from what you've read about other people writing about walking through castles, then it's going to be much harder for your writing to appear unique and distinct, since you're by definition pulling from something that other people have already created and is already an abstract from something that actually exists. But if you actually have the experience of walking a castle rampart at night with the wind blowing, it's much, much easier to come up with something that will not only stick, but feel original. Well, and going along with that, I feel like places that everyone has been, like standing in a field, maybe not everybody stood in a field at night with the wind blowing through the hair. That's the best place to be, if you ask me. I would rather just be there all the time. But um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like if you're going somewhere specific, like the U-boat example, like there's no way for you to have felt the way that it feels inside a U-boat unless you've been inside of one. Or there's no way for you to know what it smells like or how the air feels because it's confined. Like all of those things are atmospheric details that add so much to writing. They immerse your reader in ways, and I'm stealing your example, Susan, so you could probably do a better <laughs> job of explaining this, but the book that I'm writing right now was originally supposed to be set in like a Tang Dynasty China, except that right now that's not going to jive with the industry, so it's just set in a completely secondary world. But while I, I actually went to China the summer before I started seriously writing it and went through a bunch of museums that featured Tang Dynasty pottery and Tang Dynasty this and Tang Dynasty architecture and the things that I got on the ground, both from the person who was following me around and telling me what everything was, was way different than what I could have gotten from the internet. Like the spatial awareness for one thing, but also like just the color of things and the detail and what things actually meant. Like all of those things were things I couldn't have just studied and figured out for myself. I had to see it in person. I'm I'm a little bit more second Han, but I also really like uh, first Chin, only Chin, I suppose, <laughs> uh, because the totalitarian government in my novels is based a little bit on the philosophical, political thought of Chinese legalism. But that's not why I opened my mouth. In this particular <laughs> instance, what I wanted to do was uh, to say that I have a personal feeling also that once you have acquired or somehow experienced an element for yourself, such as uh, going to China, uh, being there and doing that, that while you're in the process of writing out your draft, your subconscious mind will help you by suggesting or surfacing adjectives and adverbs and other language that may reflect things you know about the character and the environment, things that you know, but you're not particularly making explicit in the text at that time. So I think that uh, doing the on-site visit also contributes to the formation of a richer uh, character and environment, not exactly by accident, by, uh, but by serendipity. 
Yeah. <laughs> I also feel like it can help inform your plot because, I mean, invariably, if I go somewhere in person, then I pick up on details. This is like what Aaliyah was saying, that I would never have noticed if I weren't there in person. And that informs, like, all sorts of things in my plot. Like, I didn't know there were teapots that, depending on where you put your thumb, could pour from different things inside of a teapot. Like, think of all the poisoning things that you could do with a teapot like that. And I don't want to, like, steal <laughs> that directly from Chinese culture. Job. I wouldn't do that. But it, it gets my mind turning. And, like, what are other ways that you could be sneaky and poison someone or, or whatever else? Susan's thought made me think, I was not planning on saying this, but I just want to put a plug in for keeping a journal, if at all possible. Just because that can be so helpful for coming back later and trying to remember something that you didn't even know you wanted to write about. Like, I've been working on this scene and I was like, you know, I really wanted to have this feeling that I had this one time when I was in Holbosch in Mexico. So I went back and I looked at what I had written and was able to get details that I had completely forgotten I'd experienced, which is always really nice. So <laughs> journal. So what if what if you don't have easy access to a castle and you can't go and do this research and write about it? What then? What is the next best thing you can do? Aaliyah, you might answer this one because uh, I think you had the good <laughs> you answer. You jumped in first. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I think... It is so important to be able to have a good network of experts in the field. So if you can't go somewhere, the next best thing for me is to talk to someone who has been somewhere, who has had that experience. Whether it's your great uncle Carl who lives in Germany or your friend Liz who works as a chef and can tell you what it's like to be sweltering in a high stakes kitchen. Information conveyed person to person has a much different feel than information you find on Google. And even though you're not there to get those little details of cool things, they have been there. They do know what it's like. And these thoughts are already already kind of churning in their heads. I'm kind of in favor also and, and would recommend seeing whether or not an environment or something that is accessible to you is similar enough or something that you can look at or experience and extrapolate from. I, I mentioned earlier being a little spatially challenged, and I was writing a novel where it's an old fort in the high Pamir uh, mountains, or a plateau actually is what the Pamir is. It's an old fort, and the walls were 40 feet high. And I told you that I don't know how big my living room is, but uh, here in Seattle, about two miles from my house, is the Montlake Cut with a drawstring draw span bridge over it and I was down at the water level one day and looked up and saw that the height restriction was posted on the bridge it's 40 feet now I can tell you what 40 feet looks like even though I have never been to the roof of the world for instance so I think that you, you can sometimes find something that will give you some information something that might be roughly comparable in your environment if you can't go to China or go to Kiel or whatever I think that is such great advice. I was writing my series that is just about to, the last book is about to come out, is set in a dystopic, is that a word? I don't know if it is, a dystopia future where there are people who are flying around in things that are kind of like helicopters, but I had never been in a helicopter before. And so I went to an Air Force museum and I never went up in the air in a helicopter that's actually a lie. I have been in a helicopter, but I hadn't been in a military helicopter. <laughs> and so, and, and going and looking at the helicopters and actually getting to look inside of them and like, and the way that they smelled and like just being in a room full of all of these aircraft, it, it totally changed 
how I wrote some of the things that were happening in those in those scenes when they're inside their little fake helicopter thing. So I didn't get to go up in one for this particular thing, but I did get to, I did the next best, best thing and went and looked inside of one and talked to people who had flown them. How can you prepare beforehand to get the most out of an experience, an on-site experience? What kind of questions can you go in to the experience with that will help you writing later? What should you be looking for? One of the things to suggest is first to decide what you're using the experience for. Obviously, I needed to know how small the inside of a submarine was, but also I think it's fun to to approach the topic from the point of view of where it stands in the story. I think somebody else has something uh, more coherent to say about that than I do. But things like, uh, is the character that you want to track or find out about, is that character coming into with us in such a garden for the first time versus being the person who owns the garden or things of that nature? And uh, while you are in the environment, I'll use the Japanese garden at uh, the Arboretum as an example because it's a formal Japanese garden. And uh, you can go there as somebody who's never been to one. You can go there as the, some, somebody who owns the garden, somebody who maintains the garden. That kind of point of view that you can adopt as you absorb the experience may be helpful in making the most of it. For sure, the details that you notice would be completely different. And how much you need to know about the place would be too. If you're the gardener, then you need to know where all of like the secret black widows live. <laughs> but if you're just <laughs> walking in for the first time... <laughs> Then you probably just see the pretty plants. And the, I've never been to that particular arboretum. But anyway. Kind of on the flip side, unless you're writing about someone who's visiting a place as a tourist, it will help to not think like a tourist, I imagine. For sure. I feel like it's important to do your research beforehand so that if you're going to a place and you're planning to have this in-person experience that's going to inform your writing, like go, like if you're walking into boot camp for the first time, you should go try and like knock over the beds to see if they fall over or like you should try to talk to people who are, <laughs> okay, that's maybe ridiculous. Caitlin, you're going to get in so much trouble at boot camp. But I mean, I mean, those are details <laughs> that you join the army. Know. Especially when she brings her poison teapot. <laughs> There's so many details you just, you can't make up but that are going to be right there in front of you but that you won't know until you think through what you're trying to write and things that are going to be a part of your plot beforehand so that you can ask the right questions and you can take pictures of the right things and you know have a journal on hand so you can write down details that might not matter to you right at this very moment but might matter later as you're writing a lot of us write science fiction and fantasy though so how does on-site research apply to something when we're making it up well one of one of the uh, one of the consistent jokes that I used to tell at panels at science fiction conventions was to point out that I'm writing a series about a professional state sponsored torturer, so it's all about write what you know. And, and this works on science fiction panels because people can see me and realize that I am a fluffy biscuit of a person. Um, I might be able to harm a fly, but uh, but not on purpose. Um, so. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, the, the, the thing about write what you know is unnecessarily limiting. However, um, looking for the, the things in the situation that might be consistent with experiences that you can gather. Uh, going back to the remark that was made about talking to people in, in order to do research if you can't go on site, 
I wish, and at the very first novels, the the first novels when the degree of non-consensual interpersonal violence was a particular surprise to readers because they, I'd only started to write them. One of my editors, for instance, once on the telephone asked me, how do you come up with these things? My gosh, you know, how do you invent a, a concentration camp uh, situation? How do you invent these arcane tortures? How do you come up with this totally horrific political system? And I told my editor at the time that I wish the heck I had to make that up. I told her just to go read the paper. So... Uh, for some kinds of uh, of literature, especially you know these days we're we're kind of caught up in in some fairly negative uh, situations in our real world experience through reading through the paper and that kind of stuff. It's not so much a question of having to make it all up, but of looking at what exists already in the real world that can be adapted. Uh, in your own way, in your own voice, in your own created universe and characters. But you're getting your experience in that sense for writing your science fiction or fantasy novel from things that are already here and already now. I mean, I feel like that's all that <laughs> needs to be said. Thank you. That was a fabulous answer. We're actually about out of time for this portion of the podcast. So before we move on to the critique, does anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to share? I just have one thought about places that you can mine for ideas if you don't if you don't know anybody personally, there's a really great website called StoryCorps where people record their own experiences about certain stuff and you can peruse through and listen. And it's really interesting. So I recommend that if you want somebody's on-hand experience. Hmm. Good resource to check out. All right. Now we get to move on to the next portion of the podcast where we critique a listener's submission. So quick review. We try to be non-prescriptive and that means we point out the things that might need a second look, but we don't necessarily say how to fix them. If you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a quick summary of this week's submission. In the year 1939, main character Boris and his friends are resisting the German invasion with a secret plan revolving around an invention Boris will sell. Fast forward 40 years or so, and Boris is living in America. What are some things we liked about this submission? Personally, I thought that there were was a lot of uh, creative phrase-making. The author has got a distinct voice. And some of the language used to describe things was uh, fresh and interesting to me. Another thing that I liked was the fact that I felt that the three scenes that we have in this in this first chapter, they were all moving. Nothing nothing stopped for an exposition dump or something like that. There was good energy throughout. I agree. I especially thought the the opening scene was very punchy, and it told me two things. Number one, that this author has done their research. They they knew the lingo, they knew the facts, they knew what was going on. And number two, we started right in the middle of the action, which I liked. I am very interested in what this meteor is, especially since the submission was labeled science fiction slash historical. So I'm assuming it's something more than just a meteor, and that instantly caught my I also like some of the sensory detail, and there are some really nice lines. I mean, as this little resistance group in a newly invaded by Nazis Czechoslovakia. I really liked the image of gentle moths beating themselves to death against a window. Um, there was a character detail of silence bothering Boris. Um, and then when we jump forward in time, there's this great contrast between old scars on a tree trunk in front of a library from where horses had been tethered and then the newer carvings in the tree made by love-struck teens. 
classes were all really nice. I love the line, the smoky, sweet, and spicy scent of old books. Just along with that. I thought the submission did an extremely good job of creating a very strong sense of place, both geographically and chronologically. Even though there's there's sort of, there's three very distinct sections in terms of place, and I thought all three of them were very very strongly rooted. People are always telling you to um, show not tell, and and that annoys me because I'll I'll write it any way I damn please. Thank you very much. Um, but I want to be in this excerpt uh, in uh, in the third scene where the character of Riley is introduced. On the one hand, the author tells us some things about Riley. On the other hand, the author shows us some action that's taking place with being really careful about uh, scraping uh, the chair against the concrete and clearly being unnerved about the contact of chalk with the board that tells you things about Riley and provides a great deal more of, of depth and richness to that character just right in, in a couple of paragraphs. What are some things that might need a second look? So I think my biggest issue as I read this submission is it just felt like there were some some voice and tense inconsistencies where I kind of got lost in the words where I wasn't really sure what an analogy was supposed to mean or there just were a lot of words crammed together in one sentence and it didn't quite read in a way that that lent itself to me just flying through the submission, if that makes sense. I actually had a, the same issue. My copy editor hat was on kind of the whole time that I was reading it. So just really specific. This is so picky, but I think it will really improve readability if you go through and watch for adjectives and adverbs, because I think a lot of times it's easier. It, it'll be punchier if you use less of them and stronger nouns and verbs, which will help with readability as well as just keeping an eye on commas and semicolons and colons and what each of them does. That's so technical. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> well, I actually had an issue along similar lines, and mine was just more with some of the phrases. There were a lot of uh, passive-feeling sentences like, having arrived late to the meeting, everyone in the room had been worried or being so close to the border. And so I was also looking for, you know, punchier verbs, trying to figure out what's going on. Actually, a lot of the gerunds in this submission have um, unclear antecedents or it, it the, the actual subject of the sentence. Sorry, this is so picky. No, wait, I can, I can get an example so, so we can ground that. Actually, the one that Aaliyah just said, having arrived late to the meeting, everyone in the room had been worried. The person who was late to the meeting is the main leader guy, but then the, the way the sentence is structured, it's saying that everyone was worried because having arrived, like it's the having arrived to the meeting was referring to everyone. So that's just something to look at. Sorry, we're being so super picky. We're not even supposed to do that. <laughs> on, a, on a bigger issue. Okay, so here's a bigger picture thing. So I feel less like a coffee <laughs> editor. The perspective change to Riley kind of took me by surprise just because I thought I knew what the book was going to be about. And then we had a jump in time and a perspective change. And suddenly everything I thought I knew that this book was promising me seemed different. And I think that'd be less of a problem if we had a query or if we had like a book blurb to tell us what to expect. But just reading this through with no other outside information, I'm not sure where the book is going or what promises are being made. I agree. I think that was my biggest problem. We get a lot of information in the prologue about that does a really good job of establishing the setting, like I talked about earlier in the positives. Mm -hmm. And it's not info dumpy, and it feels very grounded and, and, and real. But then we just jump, what is it, 40 years later? 
and all of a sudden we're following a a kid in a trigonometry class in America who has and golden like, green eyes. All so so all of all of that information I just internalized and built up about this setting is now suddenly like not applicable. I'm not even sure what genre we were in because it went from feeling quite adult to a teenager with golden green eyes, which screams YA romance to me. Sorry, that's maybe just me. I admit I had the same thought. <laughs> I tell you something. I, I tell you two things. But the first one I'm going to tell you is that my my uh, personal thought about something that, that might be worth a second look is that some of the historical detail that the author has in the text, you can tell, as, uh, as somebody's remarked, that uh, the author is, has done a lot of research and knows period and so forth in Czechoslovakia in 1944. At the same time, there was uh, a detail that I personally found quite startling. It was startling enough that it gave me the, hey, wait a minute, kind of experience and made me want to go uh, do some research on Wikipedia about this particular seemingly anomalous detail. And we don't want to interrupt the writer's train of thought with a cool piece of uh, information or reference that, that might not be common enough knowledge for a person's reader to recognize and accept and so forth. That's where I thought that uh, there might be some additional attention on trying to find places where an otherwise reasonably well-educated but not as familiar sort of reader might stop and get distracted. But the other thing I would like to take this opportunity to say is that I just put together a whole bunch of manuscripts in the basement and sent them to a science fiction archive in Iowa, I think it is. And so I've just been handling draft material that I wrote 40 years ago. And if God is good, that will never see the light of day. Nobody will ever want to look at it. Um, and in this instance, I am looking at this manuscript. I don't know where the author is in their writing career, but I looked at that and I said, just keep writing. Just, just, there's nothing in there that will not fully answer and satisfy you, the author's wishes for the document. You just keep writing. I do want to jump back really fast to Susan's comment about the detail that distracted her because I don't think you actually said which detail it was. I think you mentioned that it was the cornbread that caught you by surprise. I wasn't I wasn't going to sign up to that because but it was actually it was actually the cornbread. Um, my mother's mother's family was Southern. I'm an army brat, so we spent a lot of time in the American South because that's a lot where a lot of the combat arms have got their their headquartered branches. And so so reading about horses eating horses people eating cornbread in Czechoslovakia in 1944 was not consistent with any everything that I thought I knew about what people ate in, in Central Europe at that period of time. So yeah, I went and I Googled, you know, Czechoslovakian cornbread and didn't come up with much. That doesn't mean that I think that there is not such a thing. It just meant that it distracted me from the flow of the story. Which I think is your point. If it's something that people in general mm -hmm, exactly. will think, wait a second, that's probably a detail you should look at regardless of whether or not it's authentic. We're about out of time for the podcast, but does anyone have any final notes? Okay, I want to say something kind of controversial because based on what you guys have said, you guys really liked the first scene. I felt like nothing happened in the first scene. I'm a little bit okay. with Caitlin on this I one. Kind of okay, agree. I'm glad I said it then. I thought it was, I felt like it was making promises, but if those promises aren't going to 
paint the picture of most of the book. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it anymore, but my my thought process while reading it is I was going through it and it was like, okay, so this is definitely a slower paced adult historical fiction where the details are really going to matter. And I was like, okay, not personally something I'm necessarily all that into, but I, you know, I I, I know what we're going for. But then we but then we jump and we go all the way to the future. And I couldn't help but think, okay, as far as what happened in that prologue, it seems to me the only two important details is that a meteor hit and that there was that this guy's an inventor. And I don't know if we needed, it felt like three quarters of the submission to get those two details across. It's hard to know because we haven't read the rest of the book. Exactly. But I just, I felt like we spent the first like two pages before Boris even said anything. And as a main character, I mean, I, I want my, this is, totally prescriptive and not necessarily what needs to happen with your book in particular but I like main characters who do things and when we start in the middle of not action like fighting and stuff but when something is happening there's something definitely happening in the submission I mean they're all talking to each other and deciding what's going to happen but that doesn't happen and there's this yeah invention. about the invention but it takes a really long time to get to that but you guys can argue with me if you like that is why there are so many of us, so that I am not the overlord of critiquing. All right. I think I agree with you. Thank you so much to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. Definitely. And Susan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was fantastic to hear your thank insights. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a great deal, and I've enjoyed it. Our next guest will be Jody Meadows, who is the author of the Incarnate Trilogy, the Orphan Queen Duology, the Fallen Isles Trilogy, and a co-author of the New York Times bestsellers, My Lady Jane and My Plain Jane. Submissions are open now. Thank you to our intern, Sarah Doyle, for all the catering she does for our diva-level need for attention and help. Thank you, Sarah. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at Listservice or on Facebook and Instagram as at Listservice Podcast. We frequently do challenges where you can win books or first chapter critiques, so check us out. Or you can email us at listservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.